Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash race. Use the promo code race. Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now it's a global hunger games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post, yet still very racial America. You could say all that, or you could just say about race. It's much shorter. I'm Tanner Colby, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are my regular co-discussant, Raquel Cepeda. Hello, Raquel. Shalom. And Jamil Smith, senior editor at New Republic, who writes and edits pieces on race, gender, law enforcement, and sports, and is also the host of TNR's podcast, Intersection, a show about identity and what brings us together. Thank you for joining us, Jamil. Appreciate that. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking Yellowface in the World of Poetry and Donald Trump and White Nationalism. But first, let's check in, see how everyone's doing. Jamil, how what's up what's up in your world these days? Uh what's up in my world? Um doing well. Uh the podcast is off to a good start, thankfully. Um uh, everyone can go to iTunes.com slash intersection to find it. Um just finished publishing my first feature story for New Republic called The Grio of New Orleans. It's a profile of jazz musician Terrence Blanchard in the context of Hurricane Katrina. And uh, so when that you teased in in the last episode, pluggy plug, a <laughs> little bit. Okay, Hashtag that's marketing. That's why we're here. A <laughs> little bit. And uh, but other than that, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, my wife and I celebrate three years of marriage this weekend. Congratulations. Yeah. What day? Uh, the 13th. You know what? The 13th is my favorite number. Really? It's my lucky, and something always good happens to me on the 13th. Well, something good certainly happened to me, so I'm oh, very that's thankful. So, oh, that's so good. I love stories like that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Another One of my sparring partners, her anniversary, I think it's her third anniversary. Really? Is the 13th. Same day. That is really crazy. If she also got married in Gowanus on the same day, it would just be really weird. And, <laughs> wait a minute. If I think she married you. No, I <laughs> if my wife was your sparring partner, that would also be very strange. <laughs> she has a whole other life you don't know about. Exactly. And Miss Cepeda, how are you? I'm really good. My piece finally was yes, published in the New York in Times. In the New York Times, it was a cover story. The um, it's a travel story about the Havasupai, about about visiting the Havasu Falls. And it was kind of like I say travel story in quotes because it was about a lot, you know, a lot of other things. Right. And um, I've been getting a lot of great, great feedback on it. And I'm actually really interested in exploring something that I actually wrote in there uh, in the future, which is I always thought that the case for reparations should include indigenous Americans, that conversation. And it really inspired me to think and explore that route a little bit more. Interesting. So I'm really, you know, like I, 
I guess it's kind of narcissistic to be inspired by something you write, but it's just, just seeds, right? It just, it's like Lewis Hyde. He says it's a gift that keeps on giving. The best saying I've ever heard about journalism is like they pay you to learn. And, and to think. Yes. And so that's what that's what you're doing. I don't think yeah. you should apologize for any of that. Yeah. But but if if we do reparations for Native Americans, don't we have to give it all back to the Native Americans and there's nothing left to give black people? Well, right? no, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, you figure There'll it out. There'll be nothing left for 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 <laughs> white Americans. Right. You well, know, we could start with an apology. We sure. fucking jacked your land and we still effing you up the ass. And we're still oppressing you to this day. And we're still teaching you that that wasn't genocide, cultural genocide. We can start with that. Okay. And then move our way from there. I'd I'd say, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good starting point. There's there's nothing wrong with just being a little bit more. I I was being facetious in my my rancor. But Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, one way that we can actually make good, not make good, but start on the path is by teaching history in a way that's a little bit more truthful. And it's right. more balanced, right? Indeed, indeed, and and just and just making sure that people understand that uh, exactly what happened. Let's just start with teaching the facts first. Yeah, you know, and then we can get into you know because right now you know we're just not learning enough facts about what happened to Native Americans. My mother's an anthropologist, studied a lot of Afro Caribbean history and intermixing with Native American tribes, and so I just think that. When when you really look into what actually happened to these people, just the horrors sometimes are just maybe too much for people to deal with. But we got to deal with them. You know, Jamil, I think we want to have your parents on as co-discussants. They seem so interesting. <laughs> There's do. a lot we can learn. They do. No doubt. Please. No doubt. <laughs> Next time she's in town, I'll let her know. <laughs> so I am good. Uh, I will actually be. Let me get the date here. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, well, let me ask you first. How yes. are you, Tanner? <laughs> That's fine. You have to say, I'm good. I'm good. And Tanner, by the way, I'm by the great. way, I'm great. <laughs> you sold. I sold another book. I did. I, well, I haven't sold any books since our last podcast. But October thirteenth at four o'clock, if you live in the Chicago land area, I will be appearing on a panel as a part of Chicago Ideas Week mm-hmm. uh, on race in America. So far, myself and Deray McKesson are the two co-discussants for that more to be named later so October 13th October 13th will it be live streamed I don't know that yet but I will find out and let everyone know before that day so digging in for today we have our old friend Donald Trump there's been a few articles recently mostly about Trump's uh, following there was a great piece by Evan Osnos in the New Yorker about the white nationalist community he was profiling this group when Trump announced his candidacy and he saw this groundswell of support come up among these these very radical fringe race war kind of thinkers in the white nationalist community and he profiled their support for Trump and to me what's fascinating about what's going on with Trump now as as Osno said in his piece brilliantly about analyzing Trump is useless because he said quote plumbing Trump's psyche is as productive as asking American Pharaoh the winner of the triple crown why he runs the point is what happens when he does so we're not going to talk about Donald Trump but we are going to talk about what's going on now and especially with regards to his his comments about immigration, is provoking a reaction among white America. And we're seeing a a sea change or we're we're seeing something that's been happening for a while about how white identity is changing and where it's supposedly headed for 2042. So I would just put to you, Jamil, as our guest today, Mm -hmm. what is going on with white identity? What is happening to it? And where do you see white identity 
and its relation to the melting pot and all these other factors and, and phenomenon by the time we get to 2042. I see it as something like something akin to a TV series being adapted in another another country and now it's on NBC or CBS or what have you and we like oh wait that's an it's an amazing original like thing like and like no actually this was already done before and i think that's what, kind of what we're seeing here we're seeing the repetition of or i guess like the a brighter light shining on something that's already been there and already been festering for quite a while mm-hmm. and what i think that osmos gets right is that these people are you know going to lose the eventual battle for modernity. They are going to be majority minority very soon uh, in the next, I guess, maybe 2042, 2042. And then in 2052, I think the majority minority uh, voters. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about within potentially our lifetimes, those of us sitting here and definitely within the next generation behind us lifetime. So they're going to lose that battle for modernity. And I think that they understand this. So they are looking for someone who is voicing their frustrations, but not not just voicing their frustrations, but in doing so in a colorful and entertaining way. When you basically have the Republicans are a party that is not interested in governance. I think that's something that is is pretty well established. Um, When you have a party that represents your interest that's not interested in governance, well, at the very least, you're going to be entertained. You want to be entertained. You want to be have your emotions stoked within you. And this guy is speaking to them in a particular way because he has a brand of Hollywood style. He has a certain panache. And that is I don't see it. Do you do you see it? I, I, I don't see it because be I don't a, like The Apprentice, but The Apprentice was on for a long time. There's a lot of people that love what no. Donald Trump brings to the table. I mean, Donald Trump has, has been well established. One of my favorite parts of this whole race, that's it's bringing to light the fact that Donald Trump is Donald Trump, not for anything that he's actually done. He's, you know, he is somebody who would have been just as rich and just as wealthy if he had basically just sat on his money and not done anything. This is the other thing I don't understand. Why did, did it blow up in Mitt Romney's face when he talked about his plan of encouraging people that were undocumented to self-deport? But... It's stoking so many people now. We're four years further on under Obama, four years more frustration, four more years, as he points out in the article, uneducated, non-college educated, working class men have seen their incomes drop by 20% in real terms over the last generation. There's a lot of frustration. And, and a need to blame other people. And a need to blame other people. And uh-huh. I think, you know, it's we talked about on the B-side, taking people where they are. I understand where their frustration is. They've been lied to their whole lives by telling them this that this was a white country and that black people and people of color don't belong here. And they've inculcated those ideas and they believe them. And so you can understand where their frustration stems from. And I, I wonder, can those frustrations be addressed productively or does that rump faction of people have to be written off? Here's where I come down on whiteness because I've thought a lot about whiteness in, in the past <laughs> few years. Whiteness exists really on two different levels. There's whiteness as whiteness, which is people who believe in the white race and the white culture and the white tradition. And those people are wrong, right? Because there is no such thing as whiteness. It's just make-believe. It's a construct. You know, most of the white people I don't know don't sit around thinking about the white race. You always have to say it like that, the white race. You're like pissing. We're going to get a bunch of voicemails from the South. Remember, I'm from Alabama, so I can say it. So, So there's people who subscribe to the white race, right? And then most of the people that I know who are white 
just sort of like none of the above. It's like, well, my parents were, to take my example, German, Polish, French, Italian. I'm not Cajun. really- Well, the French is Cajun. Okay. So I'm not any one of those four anymore. So I must be this other thing. So I'm just kind of none of the above. So there's whiteness as none of the above. And there's whiteness as whiteness. Like th- this mm-hmm. is a thing. It's a tangible thing. We have a culture at, and, and so on and so forth. And I think those two things are often conflated. Everybody mm-hmm. just talks about white privilege. And we, we talk about this umbrella thing. I, my theory, and we'll, take, we'll meet back here in 40 years and see if I'm correct. <laughs> Promise. Is that Promise. those two things are going to break in half. And so people who cling to their whiteness are gradually and cling to it in an ugly way are going to get more and more marginalized. And white people who are willing to open the door and allow people of color into the establishment are going to keep their position. I don't know what universe you're living in right now, but (laughs) I think it's going to get a lot uglier. Yeah. One thing that I that I learned that I didn't know was the difference between white nationalists and supremacists. Which I thought was fascinating. Which I thought was fascinating. Do you yeah. find that a useful distinction? I think it's useful only in, in the sense of what you were talking about. You know, I mean, I think that you, you're talking about people who believe that this is, you know, a white nation and understand this nation to be, you know, I guess basically gifted by God, you know, for them. There's people who believe inherently that they are, in fact, superior to those are the supremacists. Race. It's the supremacists. And the, but the white nationalists just feel in, in like they're endangered species, like they're right. being victimized. And I think when you mix, frankly, you've got a nice mix of those emotions going on right now in the politics that Trump represents. And what you have is you got white people who understand that they're being marginalized and they see black and other people of color being, quote unquote, celebrated by popular culture for expressing their cultural identity president he's celebrated for his blackness and and beyonce she celebrated for her blackness and all in these athletes gosh you know i have 80 of my nfl team my favorite nfl team is black they're doing this crazy dance they just all this blackness and i can't assert my white identity because heaven forbid i tell someone i'm proud that i'm white and i get criticized i'm a, you're a racist you're this or that and i think that that is something that that is being tapped into here these people want to be proud of their heritage you know what i don't and think they don't know how to do it i don't think there's anything wrong with being proud of your white heritage like mm-hmm. well they, the way that i what i came away with this from this article well, was whiteness that is I, not a thing. white that hold on a second that the way they're talking about whiteness is anglo-celt that's what they mean by by whiteness. Right, like, but like wasp, what I'm talking so about, yeah, yeah. But what I'm talking about is I'm just thinking back to people I've interviewed in the past, to everyday people on the street that I've interviewed for CNN or WNYC or whatever, where I talked to them about like what does it mean for you to be white, and it was around the census time, and they were like, well, you know, sometimes I think about it, and I'm like, I want to be able to celebrate my Irish American or French American or British, you know, English American or whatever American. I want to learn more about my history, my culture, but I also feel like in a way I've assimilated by becoming white. So I just feel like if you want to learn about your culture, you're not a racist just because you want to learn about your culture. But I think they're taking it to a whole other, the people that are being featured in this story are taking it to a whole other, obviously, uh, batshit crazy stage. Right. I mean, Anglo-Celt culture doesn't include me. So that, you know, what they're talking or about. Or even Trump, because he's, isn't he, he's part, his ancestors are German. I, I, I have no idea. But but the point being is, so you think I'm living on a different planet by the fact that the white majority in this country or substantial portion of the white majority in this country wanted an assimilated black president and tunes in to watch two assimilated mixed race biracial comedians on Comedy Central every week. Mm-hmm. People, white people 
with every passing generation, the definition of whiteness has changed from total wasp, it didn't even include Celt, from just pure wasp Anglo-Saxon to right. Anglo-Celtic, and then it included Catholic, and then it included Eastern Europeans, and then, you know, my grandparents. The definition of whiteness has changed generation after generation, and it will continue. Whiteness will expand and breathe as much as it needs to to stay where it is. Right. It, and the people who are clinging to the Anglo-Celt, they don't understand the, pow- the power of whiteness is in its flexibility. Mm-hmm. And that you just keep expanding it and expanding it and expanding it. And for me, who is a white person who has access to all the social and cultural capital that is currently governs this country, it doesn't threaten me at all to say, all right, Raquel, Jamil, Bertunde, everybody come on in. As long as everyone is sharing in what, what's already here, I'm fine. And so right. I'm not threatened. And I agree with that because your, your whiteness is not built on resentment. And right. your resentment is built largely in, through socioeconomics. And so, you know, you have a lot of uneducated, poor white people who think that, well, you know what, I'm not getting this job or this particular promotion or this break in life because more blacks, I keep seeing more blacks getting well, these breaks or they think that they do. Or quote unquote illegals, because, you know, we can't blame anything and we can't take the blame for anything. We can't shoulder anything. So right. the way what, what Trump is doing, that's speaking to that segment of the population is mm-hmm. saying, you know, we're going to build a border. We're going to do this wall. We're going to put this wall up. It's going to be all about the wall. They're speaking to people in a way they understand mm-hmm. instead of talking about concepts, uh, governmental concepts that are kind of abstract to most everyday common, simple people. Right. And we can also we also have to make sure that we bring in the fact that gender equality has a lot to do with this as well. I mean, you have women, quote unquote, ascending to Heights that they've never ascended. Would, as, would, as far would as these, as far this as these be an intersection, people, Jamil? Uh, this would actually be intersectionality. In okay, practice, yes. go go for it. Bring um, it. <laughs> so, <laughs> pluggy plug. Exactly. You got you have women, you know, ascending to heights, at least on a, in a sort of a public sphere level. That these aggrieved people who understand that their privilege is eroding, they're like, wait a minute, I don't understand. And so it's that's another thing. And so they've got in, in this brand of politics that Trump is promoting, not just the race element, the race grievances, but also the grievances towards women. Mm-hmm. And and you see that, you know, very plainly, not just in whatever sort of bland, unspecific policies that he's proposing, but also in how he treats women on a public stage. Well, you know, it's interesting because that article also talked about a woman who was pro-Trump. And then after he said, after he went after Megyn Ke- Kelly, was like turned off and then she forgave him. I just think it's kind of a reflection of how society sees violence against women, which is basically that they're desensitized to it, whether mm-hmm. it's online yep. or whether it's in the physical world. Yep. Well, white people who feel threatened don't realize because they, they just haven't been able to see it and they need you know more education to see it, is that if you're a white man in America, you have every advantage there is. And yes, women and people of color are rising up. But guess what? If you learn how to work well with women and people of color, you keep all the advantages of being a white man, and you move fluently in those other new circles that are also ascendant, and so you actually have more privileges than you did before. Right. So white people, white men, have no need to feel threatened. They just need to adapt. It's like new job training. It's getting a new job skill. You need to adapt to what the changing world, and you'll be fine. And you know what? While all these white people, white men especially, are feeling in, in danger, they're actually endangering the lives of many Latino and, and, and people, not only, quote unquote, Mexicans or, quote unquote, illegals or whatever Donald Trump is calling them on, on his, you know, on his hate tour. Mm-hmm. But it's be- actually manifesting itself in, in crime. I'm in Boston a couple of weeks ago. 
I mean, in, at, at the end of August, rather, two uh, brothers felt called by their Jesus, which is a.k.a. Donald Trump, to beat the shit out of a homeless a Latino man and urinate on his face. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump didn't even, he just said, oh, people that follow me are really passionate. I think he kind of got off on that. He later before, apologized. Before he apologized. Before he apologized. He, right. before he, but if nobody would have taken him to task or somebody he respects would have taken him to task, and I don't know who that person is, he probably would not have apologized. In the meantime, you see this rise in like hate groups, actually especially upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Very much so in upstate New York. And places that you wouldn't even expect. I mean, I do expect it actually in upstate New York, right. but you know what I mean? But there's like a swell mm-hmm. in all these like militia groups and, 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 uh, and, and neo-Nazis and white supremacists and white nationalist groups that are, you know, just cropping up everywhere. And I think that Donald Trump and the, his rhetoric and how people are responding to it. I know we, they said not to listen to polls, but right. it's hard not right. to look at polls. The way they're responding to it is, is actually stoking that flame. Steve Stout who is an advertising and marketing guy, marketing guy worked with... Was it everybody. Or, yeah, he worked with he everybody. He worked with L. Cool J, Mariah Carey. Yeah. He has a... Yeah, Puffy, everybody, everybody. And he has a great book. It's mostly about marketing and you know, change, you know advertising the to the change yeah. demographics of America. He calls it the tanning of America, the tanning effect. And I, I find that a useful analogy, probably not for the reasons he intended, but in, in to take tanning as, as, as a metaphor for what's happening here, what it means is that the white part gets darker. And a lot of white people have a problem with that because they can't handle the white people getting darker because it means that their pure Anglo-Celtic heritage is transforming into something else. A lot of people of color don't like it either because a lot of people of color don't want to migrate to the white area and assimilate into that culture, bring some of their own culture too, but assimilate into that culture and join it. And so the question is, can you have a new majority that is white people, progressive, open-minded, enlightened white people, mixed-race people and assimilated people of color, can that be the new governing majority with a new Afrikaner-style white minority that has now just become like any of the other rump ethnic groups that represents its own faction? Is that a possibility? I mean, I think it's possible, but I think we have to change the way we do politics in order to achieve that. I mean, frankly, we have a politics that rewards this kind of behavior. I mean, think about what you just said about Trump. He sort of just came out and said something kind of lukewarm, and then he was forced to say something stronger. I mean, I'm not sure if he really apologized so much as like he sort of like, okay, well, you know, I took more account and he condemned what happened, but he still got the benefit from it. As long as our politics continues to reward this kind of stuff, then I'm not sure how we're ever going to really see that happen. And he's inspiring other people to like raise up, you know, like to 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 put the heat up on their own rhetoric, right? right? Like inspire, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, in fact, like if you're say you're you know you're Scott Walker, like you're already extreme enough, but you feel the need to he's catch the up. Real Donald Trump, right? You feel the need to catch up to this guy, so yeah. now you're going to you know come out and make all these kind of ludicrous statements and condemn Black Lives Matter in this really ludicrous way, and and do all these things to basically try to catch up. But no one's no one's paying attention to you, dude. Like no one's paying attention to anyone in this race not named Donald Trump or Ben Carson, which is the latter is astonishing to me. Other than obviously the immediate threat of violence, uh, like we saw with this incident in Boston, other than stoking that kind of violence, isn't it good that we're just letting these people do this and get it out of their system and show it for what it is? Because it's a losing strategy in the long run. Everyone, I, I, obviously. But it, in the meantime, it's not him losing at the end. I don't think he cares if he loses at the end. He just oh no, wants power. He's, he's just a narcissist a who's on a trip. That's, but that's, it's the fact that he's hijacking a conversation and it's inciting a bunch of like, remember what happened with Jorge Ramos? 
Yeah, but I think he's causing conservatives to, the chickens are coming home to roost because Jeb Bush and all these people are having problems with Trump now. They all played into this Fox News ecosystem for years, and now they're reaping the reward of their own irresponsible politics. But in this whole kerfuffle, mm-hmm. Trump may just end up, you know, com- uh, well, he's dest- I don't know what, he's destroying the fabric of what, you know, like opening all the closets in the GOP. He's is a possibility. A friend of mine told mm-hmm. me who was there who who said that people were joking. Or he's like seventy something years old. He remembers when people were joking about Ronald Reagan, and then he all of a sudden he won. He says that Donald Trump reminds him a lot of Ronald Reagan. I mean, my my thing, my my only thing though, I really want to make sure we don't give Trump too much credit here. I mean, right. he is only right. doing in a very Hollywood stylized style the same thing that. Other candidates in the Republican race have been doing for decades. Mm-hmm. Right. And so let's not let's not make the mistake of making, you know, yeah, these guys are trying to catch up to him in this particular race, right. but they're not doing anything that, you know, past candidates haven't done. Right. And plus, I mean, Donald Trump has Twitter and, and Instagram and social media and Facebook and all. So I'm sure it would have been the same kind of attention had these tools existed back then. Right. If Rick okay. Santorum right. had hosted a, a reality show, he might be doing the same thing. But right can now. I just say one Got more it. thing? One more thing. Okay. Let's go. The one more thing. I read a poll. <laughs> I know we're being warned against polls, but uh, ABC Washington Post poll where they said well, it's a minority, but 15 percent of blacks and Latinos see saw Trump or see Trump as you know favorably. And to me, I'm so fascinated by that 15 percent. I'm calling to the our listeners. If any of our listeners are part of that 15 percent, please send us a voice memo. What the hell do you see in this guy? please, at showaboutrace at gmail.com. Okay, and we'll leave it there. Much more to discuss, obviously. So if you are a black or Latino supporter of Donald Trump, give us a call. Or what do you think is going to happen to whiteness in America? Is it going to go the way of the dodo bird? Is it going to transform itself into something new? How are people of color going to fit into whatever the new majority of this country is? Give us a call. Drop us an email, showaboutrace at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. So let's take a break right now to hear from the people who pay for our salaries. Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by Casper. Mattresses are expensive. Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It's only $500 for a twin-size mattress and only $950 for a king-size mattress. Compared to industry averages for mattresses, that's an outstanding price. They have just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies come together in a Casper mattress, latex foam and memory foam. A Casper mattress provides better nights and brighter days. Another great thing about Casper is that they have a risk-free trial and return policy. That means you can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days, 100, with free delivery and painless results. If a Casper mattress doesn't work for you, you can send it back for free. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and show your support of our show by visiting casper.com slash race and using the promo code race. That's casper.com slash race. You know the promo code. It's race. So we are back and now over to Raquel to talk about Yellowface and poetry. I'm going to actually invite Cody Carvel, our tech maven slash poet, because we're speaking, we're talking about the best American poetry series of 2015, the anthology, right? That was um, edited by Sherman Alexi, who is like one of my favorite writers still, despite him totally bumming me out by not pulling Michael 
Derek Hudson, whose name, you know, I keep on fighting myself. I want to say Michael Eric Dyson. I don't know why. Don't I don't say know why. That. Michael Derek Hudson. Michael Derek Hudson. Not pulling his poem, The Bees, The Flowers, Jesus, Ancient Tigers, Poseidon, Adam, and Eve from the um, anthology. And actually, I'm inviting Cody. I'm going to get back to that because you are a poet. And also, you're, uh, you have something in common with Sherman Alexi. Your grandparents were on the Trail of Tears, right? Somebody your in your family. Tree. Yes, yeah. On on what side? On your mother's or father's? My mother's side. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so anyway, you know, we were talking about this before because Cody and I, I used to be part of the whole, like, um, poetry movement of the, like, the middle, the mid, the early-ish mid-90s, you know, in New York City. They had this whole underground scene. It was really cool. It kind of, like, gave birth to the whole deaf poet, deaf poetry um, uh, world and show and etc. I guess it was also a play, right? Deaf Poetry was a play on Broadway. Anyway, that it gave birth to that scene. So we were talking about this before and we were talking about um, before we came in here in the room. And Cody, you're also a poet who is a fellow also, right? Like, yeah, I've, I've done fellowships and residencies. And, and you I've were like some... knighted in England, I heard. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm still looking for the land that they're supposed to be giving me for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So anyway, Sherman Alexi was guest editor, was invited to be guest editor of the 2015 series. And it's funny because they say the best American poetry, but I think best should be in quotes. Yeah. Because poetry is like music and it kind of speaks to you and resonates with some people when it doesn't resonate with others. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. So Michael Derrick Hudson, a poet from Indiana, published actually got chosen to be part of the anthology, The Best uh, American uh, Poetry 2015 by Sherman Alexie for his poem, that one that he submitted under his pen name, Yi Fen Cho, called The Bees, The Flowers, Jesus, Ancient Tigers, Poseidon, Adam, and Eve. He was very forthcoming, let's be fair. Let's give him like that, you know, about him using that, using a, a, a pen name, a Chinese pen name, as a strategy. He called it a strategy when he couldn't get I guess, published under his white man's name, so um, under his government name. So he actually was rejected 40 times under that real name for that same poem and nine times under under Yi Fen Cho until he was selected by uh, Sherman Alexie, who did find out before publication, um, according to the blog post he wrote about his criteria, basically he didn't pull it, even though he... He found out before it was published that the guy was using a pen name. So, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I guess my initial thoughts are: it takes a special kind of crazy person to submit a poem forty times and have it rejected, and then submit it again under a clearly cynical motive. It's, it's very much like what we were just—you guys were just talking about—and what we've talked about in previous episodes. This idea that. White people are actually the victims of this sort of affirmative action toward women and non-white others who uh, are coming to steal their place in the New Yorker or you know, literary journals. And it, it seems like a cynical move. It seems like a move that, well, you know, Michael Derrick Hudson isn't getting his place in uh, print, so who better to steal the spotlight than an Asian woman who's unfairly taking the place of, you know, these established or emerging white male writers that well, just, yeah. I read in, in, in Sherman Alexie's blog posts, um, you know, when I, when I first saw the words colonial theft, I thought he was going to actually write something that was meaningful. But it, his blog post kind of felt like a cop-out, kind of thin, 
and um, kind of like scripted reality TV. Like he said, he wrote like what he felt like people may, you know, something very cute and self-deprecating. Did you guys read um, the I blog did. post? What did, what did you come away with? I came away with, I was disappointed as well, mainly because I felt like Sherman Alexie made it so much about him. And I felt like the, you know, the best being in quotes, I think, would be most appropriate because of just of how he described his process. It didn't seem very thorough. It seemed very casual. What I took away from it was that, you know, Sherman, despite his best intentions, is going to be the participant in a fraud and knowing participant in a fraud. And he thinks that by publishing the poem, even after the discovery of this man's uh, pseudonym, is somehow about the poem like to me it's about him it's about sherman feeling better about the process that he conducted to you know to guest edit this 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 anthology he's he has every right to feel that way but i think that there should be some authority that should step in and remove this poem i don't care how good it is the point is it's it's presented under false pretenses period so the other thing was you know i read Something, two things that really turned me the hell off, which, and one of them was, you know, an editor's inherent desire to be diverse in picking articles and picking these kind of pieces. Mm-hmm. When he calls it racial nepotism, that was kind of like messed up. And, and then when he said that, well, you know, there is nepotism with white guys, but when white guys get, you know, let's just keep it real. A lot of them are good writers. Here's the thing I loved his blog post because here's, here's a quote from it. He said, So did I, did I pick. He he acknowledges what you say. He says, did I pick the best 75 poems published last year? Of course not. I picked 75 poems that survived a literary ordeal that happened only in my brain. And what he's acknowledging there, he's saying that this is, of course it's all about him. Of course it's unfair. Of course it's biased. People who are in favor of fairness and justice say that nepotism is a corruption of the game. No, nepotism is the game. It always mm-hmm. has been the game. It always will be the game. And you can either play that game. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago about affirmative action where Asian people were upset and they, and they were suing uh, Harvard because Harvard wasn't playing by the rules of the meritocracy because Asian students were having higher test scores and they weren't getting in. Those people oversubscribed to the idea of the fairness of the meritocracy, which is false. The, uh, the point is, is that Harvard is going to stay Harvard and Harvard is going to use its standards to do what it wants to do. And Sherman Alexie is going to use his standards to do what he wants to do. I had a friend who so handles corporatized art. No, no. I have a friend who does the hiring for the company that she's at. And it's very, very competitive, very, very high ranking. They have mastered people with master's degrees applying for unpaid internships. Right. And so by the time it gets down to the final 10 interviews and resumes, they're identical. They're all top shelf. So I asked her once because I was, you know, interested in all of these problems of diverse hiring and pipelines and all this. I was like, the final three people you interviewed, how did you pick? And she said, one of them hand wrote a thank you note and the other ones just sent emails. Yeah. And so what he's saying is that I did something that was totally subjective and had nothing to do with fairness and he's acknowledging what the world really is. And this guy, Michael Eric Dyson, whatever his name is, Michael Derrick Hudson. Michael (laughs) Derrick Hudson, resist the urge. What he's proving is the game white people play, the nepotism and the friends and the favor and and it's all who you know, that's a corruptible system of unfairness. People put affirmative action on this pedestal like, well, this will make it fair. No, affirmative action is just another game that can be corrupted and gamed and manipulated the same as anyone else. And what this guy did says, all right, well, I was unsuccessful at gaming that unfair system, so I'm going to use a different name and I'm going to go over here and I'm going to game this unfair system. 
it's the same thing. It's just two sides of the same coin. Right. And what, well, one thing about Alexi's post that I actually liked is that his admission that the fact that it had an Asian name attached to it, name that he presumed was Chinese, made him more interested in the subject matter of the poem and the perspective of the poem. And that, that I found was a an honest admission that I thought had some value. Well, I mean, I, I would have been interested just because... This guy, you know, like Alexi said, Sherman Alexi said, he's obsessed with European imagery. So, like, this guy's Chinese. It's like it makes you kind of question identity and also kind of even think about people that you've even grown up around being a person of color. But when he found out that the person was just, you know, performing this identity, I think it was irresponsible for, for, irresponsible for him not to pull it. Yeah. Um, I mean, my principal issue with it is that he didn't pull the poem. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really it. Because, I mean, him recognizing... The the fraud, you know, is good. Him coming out and, like, and admitting, say, hey, I got fooled is good. All these things are good. I think, honestly, I think there are a lot of people that wouldn't have heard about it if he hadn't actually, if Sherman Alexi hadn't written a post about it. I think that it, it matters to make this uh, you know, a well, more widespread thing. I don't think he wrote the post first. I think that they called him out first, no? And BuzzFeed? Yeah. And he um, responded. Well, I'm saying that, like. That that may be the case, but I mean, I know the first time I heard about this was hearing that Sherman. Oh, okay. Sherman Alexi admitted to. Okay, wow, what is this? Okay. And that's how I got into this. So, what I think you know, what he, the lie that's exposed about affirmative action that Tanner's talking about is important to expose. But I think that it's also I think you it, at the same time can also recognize the fraud in this and the actual dis, intellectual dishonesty. Of Michael Derrick Hudson and make sure that doesn't that doesn't go unpunished. Can we speculate that Sherman Alexi did this on purpose? purely as a publicity stunt? Because no one would be talking about the best American poetry <laughs> um, if this hadn't happened. No, no, I think it's giving him a little too much, too much, too, too I mean, much props. I don't we know. We could, we could. I don't know if that's. What do you <laughs> to think? me that, that that makes him look worse, not better. But what do you I think. Right. I, I think I think the people in best American poetry probably feel a bit undermined by this whole. Uh, ordeal. I don't think uh, this is a master scheme by Sherman Alexi. I guess that's the two things. The two things that I would mention are just that the guy was very quick to be like, no, Michael Derrick Hudson wrote that poem, not Ethan, you know, like that he needed to take credit for this award as the white person that he is eventually. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I find a bit of a distraction is that you need to say, here are the 10 female Chinese poets that you should be paying attention to, right. not this guy, you know, like, or even... Use that space to name drop people yeah, that deserve the recognition. Exactly. Right. That's the reparations yeah. that need to enter into the... You can keep the poem in there if you feel embarrassed, whatever. Publish real Chinese women poets if that was, in fact, what drew you to uh, the selection of right, this in the, exactly. in the first place. But, I mean, he did also. I mean, this this... Well, as he points out in, in in the blog post he wrote, this was like a vastly well-represented range of women and people of color mm-hmm. in the rest of the edition. It's so, 40% people of color, 60% women. Right. It, it's true. And I mean, in the New York publishing world, you know, 5% That's women, 5% Asian, you know, like these people aren't getting their books reviewed. These people. Aren't. So he did have a rubric that I think did speak to the best of intentions for representing underrepresented writers but this I do think undermines some of the other people in it doesn't negate it it just I think makes it suspect to the outside world you, know? you know what now I know there's a best even though I was in on the scene I know that there's a best American I'm not going to buy it but I know that it exists 
But I think that, you know, at least in my generation, I don't know about, you know, when you were performing, but we d- we were counter kind of corporate. And that to us, that would seem like corporate to be published in an anthology that's so mainstream. Right, right. And anyway, like just like New York is becoming crazy gentrified, the publishing world has been gentrified since like forever, yeah. right? Yeah. So here's my biggest problem with this is that, you know, while, yes, nepotism is the game, affirmative action is a game that benefits us ostensibly, right? Ostensibly. Ostensibly. It, is, it hasn't benefited me yet. <laughs> <laughs> I fully admit that it's probably, it's probably benefited look, my here, here's, education here's, look, and career at it, some point. Wait, wait, I, I will, I will. And that's fine. Let, let, well, you make your point and then I'll make yeah. my point. Go ahead. So essentially what I'm saying is that you have a game that works for underrepresented people ostensibly. And that game is being targeted in with rhetoric, with Supreme Court cases, with any number of different attacks. And then this something like this happens. And it's like there's no need to expose the uh, the the fragility of affirmative action or of or what, what you, some might call race preference in this kind of effort to balance out the equation. No one's attacking legacy. In, in colleges, no one's attacking all these other systemic benefits for white people like Michael Derrick Hudson that that benefit them. And no one's demonizing them in the same manner. Like, so when you have something like this happen, people are going to be like, well, you know, affirmative act, that just shows you the fault in affirmative action. That just shows you the fault in these quotas and these race preferences. And my problem is. These things are benefiting a wide swath of people, some of whom have gone on to become a Supreme Court justice. And I think what you have here is very selective targeting. I think when it comes to things that benefit or work for the liberation or for black people in general or, you know, people of color, what you have is, you know, very select, you know, like it's the reason why when we see something on the news, when somebody, you know, commits a uh, killing on the news, we're like, God, oh, God, I hope they're not, pro- I hope they're not black. Yeah. I hope because you know that there's going to be a wide demonization that white people don't suffer. So when you see affirmative action, like it's fine to critique affirmative action, I think, on the points and maybe even exposes hypocrisies. But my worry is that. You know, this will only exacerbate the attacks on something that's actually benefiting people and helping to level the equation. So the way that I describe the advantage of being white in America is that you have a disproportionately greater chance of being lucky. Mm. Right. I got a literary agent. We talk about breaking into the literary world. It's lily white. You know, I'm poor white trash from Louisiana. I was not part of that waspy establishment. I can come up here and fake it. Right. right. But so I can sort of move into that world. And then I got my literary agent. People send out letters for years and knock on doors to try and get literary agents. I got literary agent because a, a girl who was an intern at a company I worked for went to high school with his assistant. And it happened to come. I, my first book was published the same month he was breaking off and forming his own new literary agency. So we happened to be just looking for all new people in the world. Now, yes, you could say I have all these institutional advantages of being white, but that's random. That's luck, and that comes from the fact that me and all the uh, and everyone involved in that story is white, right? So that comes from the fact that all of us are together in this nexus of random opportunities coming up because we all know each other. Whereas if you're a Chinese female poet and you're waiting for Sherman Alexie to get tapped one year, and have that one narrow chance of him picking you because he's got that one you know bias uh, that he's going to overcorrect for this, 
it's like it's artificial luck. If white privilege is heroin, affirmative action is methadone. It's not the same thing. It never will be. It'll never close the gaps. So you are very anti-assimilation, but the only way to get what white people have, the only way to get access to that luck is to be a part of that social network. You which can be brings part of back- that social network without assimilating, without completely giving up where you, what what the things that make you who you are. You don't have to acculturate, assimilate, and become something else. And the assimilation goes in varying degrees. You can assimilate more or yeah. less, but you yeah. have to be able to be fluent in that culture and be able to move in it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But right. being fluent in, in, in that culture doesn't mean that you're assimilating, in my opinion. Well, but let's check in with your grandchildren in 70 years. All right. Right? Yeah. Let's see. Well, here, here's, I think, the, the difference is that white people do not have to have that sort of integrating nature, that sort of integrating mode of thinking. The way I got through a lot of the struggles that I got through when it's, as far as networking and what have you is because I had to take it upon myself to say, I'm going to seek out people in this other group, you know, so that I can network, so that I can, you know, learn more about what they're about. Um, they didn't necessarily have to do that. It wasn't required of them. I had to do it. I had to leave Du Bois College House at University of Pennsylvania every day where 95% of the students were black and I had to go to class and I had to learn about my classmates and I had to interact with them. They didn't have to come back home with me. They don't have to go out and seek black writers. They don't have to go out and seek Asian writers. They're doing just fine and making just enough money, as much money as they ever need to doing what they're doing. So where is the impetus to push them forward? Sometimes those impetuses come with by hiring colors of editor, you know, editors of color uh, like Sherman and Alexi, who take it upon themselves to do it. But, I mean, this is an example, if anything, of how this kind of, you know, if you're going to have any step, even if it's minor, towards leveling the playing field, you have to have it institutionalized. So, anyway. Well, but here's the thing the, about the oh. name and your resistance to anglicizing your name. Tanner Colby is maybe one of the waspiest names on the planet. In fact, we wouldn't be sitting here because Bertunde Thurston, when our mutual friend Joe Fulpovich sent him my book, he said, I'm not reading a book about race by a guy named Tanner Colby. <laughs> what can I possibly <laughs> learn from this? And But then he opened it, and much like Sherman Alexie changing his, challenging his notions of who can write what, he opens like, oh, I love this pretty good book. Tanner Colby is, I, I'm not a wasp. I'm mm-hmm. poor white Polish German Catholic trash from Texas and Louisiana. Colby is a British name. Okay. I should have then, used your name for my book. I know you should because have. Because I couldn't get any men to open it up. But you know what Colby <laughs> is? Colby is Kolbosinski. I I'm like not, that name better. Polish. I'm not British. Kolbosinski? I am Polish-German. And my mother is French and Italian, and it was originally Mark and Telly. We anglicized our names, and everyone else can get in line and anglicize behind us. Because that's what it takes. If that's what it takes to move in those circles... Those well, are the rules. And the reason why in is that... In 2042, you're going to be Colbinia. But, but here, here's, here's, here's the problem, though, is that if I have a stack of 300 resumes or, or poem submissions on my desk, yeah. and I'm not Sherman Alexie, I'm a white person who doesn't look outside of myself. If I've got those 300 resumes, and there's one black woman in that stack named Carol Watson, and there's another black woman in that stack called Tanisha Jones, it's not illegal for me to pick Carol Watson. In fact, I will be celebrated as a champion of diversity for picking that most anglicized, assimilated person of color that I can. And my tendency is always going to go that way. So the center of gravity 
is always going to pull and pick from the most assimilated minorities first. And you feel this, and as that a, is a law a of child, nature. I felt this. That's not that's not a right or wrong. Right. That is a, a, a law of physics. Mm-hmm. I definitely. I, I mean, having two Arabic names and then the last name Smith, um, you know, I had definitely the pull to want to change it. Right. You know, I mean, uh, gosh, I remember one time my pa- my mother told me that she almost named me Jonathan, and I was like, "Well, why in the hell did you do that? <laughs> Things would have been a lot easier." But here, here's but here's what I would say. I'm though. glad she this didn't. This is making me so sad. This no, okay, but here I'm going to cheer a, you up. As an adult, I'm glad she didn't. I'm going I'm going to end okay. this by cheering you up. Which is two stories about two white guys, John Belushi and Arnold Schwarzenegger. When both of them were on the cusp of getting famous, they were both told, "You have to anglicize your name." And both of them said. They thought about it, and they tried some options like, no, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to go with. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm Raquel Cepeda. I'm John Belushi. I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you have the balls to stick that out, it is ultimately the more rewarding route. But all those people I just named are very exceptional people, right? And if you have the force of will and personality to overcome that bias, you can do it. But it is by far the more difficult route. It is far more easy to be Carol Watson in that stack of resumes. It's just a question of which path you choose to take. Well, I'm slightly a little bit more cheered up. Yes. <laughs> Are you? Uh, yeah. Is everybody okay? No. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody, are we going to do like a We're going to be all right. Okay, we're going to be, be all right. Okay. All right. I may come back for the next episode. I don't know. <laughs> um, so on that note. Can I, can I bust in here? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm just going to ask people. I go by AC. My, my actual name is Ariel Carlos. Is that Adi is that anglicization? Or yes, is it, it is. Yes, it it amb- is. ambiguous. Yes, no. I think you're 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 anglicizing your name. Huh. Right. It's, a, it's a good one. Though. But it's then a all good you move. Then, then all you get is the last name is Valdez. Like I, yeah, I, but it's yeah, like Val- you say you say Valdez. It's like I, I say usually Cepeda, right. but I don't mind Cepeda because it's still not. It's still, you know, very Latino. But I know a lot of people that are American that have Valdez. You know, yeah. a white American rather. Yeah, mm-hmm. Valdez. But I come from a but I come from an English dominant Latino family. Mm-hmm. So that's a I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I want to leave this I, I in want here. People, I want people to I want people to take me to task for this if they think it's dishonest. Okay, guys, please. You heard AC, <laughs> the mysterious AC Valdez. Please take him to task. Take us all of us to task at showaboutrace at gmail.com or you could tweet us or you can Facebook us at showaboutrace. Maybe you could write a note to cheer me up a little bit because you know it's a it's a really depressing world out there for women writers of color. <laughs> also, if you bought the Best American Poetry anthology, what do you think about the other stuff that's in there? The other, the other pieces that are in there, and if you agree or disagree with Sherman and Lexi, or have any other feedback about this about this episode, email us at showaboutrace at gmail dot com, or you could tweet us or Facebook us at showaboutrace. So thanks, Raquel. And now we are going to wrap things up with our wonderful guest today, Jamil. Yo, check this out. Tell us what you're reading, what you're watching, what people should look out for. What I'm reading is Kate Harding's new book called Asking for It, The Alarming Alarming Rise of Rape Culture and What We Can Do About It. It's a really fascinating and brutal look at what patriarchy basically has done, you know, all its different tentacles through our society. And and I think that it's... um, it's a real wake-up call for anybody who doesn't think that rape culture is a real thing. And they need to understand how dire and urgent the problem of rape and sexual harassment is. As far as what I'm watching, sports. There you go. <laughs> NFL, NFL Watch just sports, started. people. <laughs> NFL just started. I'm not sure I'm watching much else. All right. And Raquel. And what podcast are you listening to? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm <just> kidding. <laughs> Other than this one? <laughs> 
We're yeah. we're expecting you to plug your own your own podcast. <laughs> I'll plug. I've his done podcast. that enough. <laughs> All right, uh, Raquel, what you got? Speaking about poetry, I want to recommend the fourth edition of this bridge called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. It's an updated and expanded edition of the foundational text of women of color feminism, and it has poetry. It's the best I've ever read. Pieces, prose, uh, an open letter. Actually, my favorite piece in the whole book is called Speaking in Tongues, and it's an open letter to women writers of color um, by Gloria Anzaldúa, the late uh, feminist poet, activist, scholar, and all-around badass patron saint of women of color writers, one of them. And it's an amazing, amazing open letter. And it's actually kind of bittersweet because it shows just really, it was written in 1980, in May 1980, published in 81 originally, published again this year in March. But it's really sombering how little things have changed for us. We have to walk through the fire because it's very hard for us to find ways around it. Okay. Good stuff. I got nothing this week. I'm too busy, so we're just, but you guys recommended like nine things each. So we're hey, gonna, wait a minute. We're going to roll it's, with it's that. It's Latino History Month. Aren't you going to recommend my book? I'm going to recommend Latino <laughs> History Month. <laughs> so everyone go out and have Latino History Month. I, I got and, one, if, if you don't Yeah, Cody, um, yeah. Uh, I, I have been meaning to catch the uh, rise of sneaker culture at the Brooklyn Museum for the last however long it's been out. and. It's ending October 4th, and I need to go see it because I'm obsessed with shoes and need to you know, go see $10,000 Air Jordans or something. Yeah. Great. <laughs> All right. Where is it? At the Brooklyn Museum, Brooklyn right? Brooklyn Museum, okay. yeah. Okay, so thank you, Cody. Thank you, Jamil. Thank you, Raquel. That is it for now. Our producer today is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com, where we accept emails and voice memos. If you want to hear be heard on the show, voice memos are the way to go. Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. That's it for now. Thank you for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of the long-lost Baratunde Thurston, Jamil and Raquel, and Cody, I'm Tanner Colby, and we won't stop until racism is over. Racism.